Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, August 4th, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, what happens when Republican presidential candidates attack Donald Trump directly, another Trump indictment, confusion and outrage over school book removals under a new Iowa law, and a state state rep announces his bid for mayor of Davenport. Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Barton, Deputy Bureau Chief for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids, filling in for the illustrious Aaron Murphy, who is taking some well-deserved time off. With me this week are Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief, Caleb McCullough. Hello, Caleb. Good morning, Tom. Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. And Tom, has anyone asked you if you're related to the famous Waverly, Iowa-born Marvel superhero Clint Barton, otherwise known as Hawkeye? Known as Hawkeye, yes. I have never been asked that question. And he was born in Waverly? According to uh, to a Marvel fan base I researched, yes. Interesting. (laughs) Did not know that uh, there was that connection. Um, And Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Morning, Todd. Good morning and happy... Kim Reynolds, Barack Obama birthday day for those oh. who celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> I would be interested to see the Venn diagram of who <laughs> who overlaps there in celebrating those two birthdays. Yeah, who would get invited to both parties? I, I don't think it'd be many. <laughs> All right. First up. Candidates looking to topple Donald Trump from his frontrunner status ahead of the Iowa GOP caucuses, with few exceptions, I should add, have largely been tiptoeing around Trump's expanding collection of felony charges. And last week's Iowa GOP Lincoln dinner probably shows why. Iowa Republicans gathered in Des Moines late last Friday for one of the largest cattle call events to date of the 2024 caucus campaign. 13 presidential hopefuls addressed a gathering of more than 1,200 at the Iowa Events Center in downtown Des Moines. The crowd did not hide their overwhelming support for former President Donald Trump, who leads his primary opponents by double digits in state-level polling. That sentiment came to a head when former U.S. Representative Will Hurd of Texas made the most direct criticism at Trump of the night. Heard said Trump was running for president to, quote, stay out of prison, end quote, eliciting loud boos from the crowd. Uh, Caleb, you were at the Lincoln dinner. Set the scene for us. What did Heard say and how did the crowd respond? Yeah, so Heard didn't drum up the most excitement kind of early in his comments. He definitely, um, you know, wasn't one of the candidates that people, I, I would guess, came out to see. But but he did have the crowd on his side generally um he he got you know some claps um when he uh when he said something to like we've lost um we've lost the popular vote for president for the last 20 years and we need to have a candidate that will win elections um but then kind of he drove that point to its conclusion and he made that comment that you mentioned he said Donald Trump is not running for president to make America great again or or to represent the people who voted for him in 2016 and 2020. Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. So that obviously got um, a lot of negative reaction from the crowds. There were um, scattered, very quiet claps. I think some people um, were were sympathetic, but it was definitely the most uh, mostly a hostile reaction. 
And so I guess, what did you make of that moment? And um, I guess, what does Trump's mounting legal troubles in the latest indictment mean for 2024? It, it's a perfect representation of, I guess, where this primary is at right now. And it's it seems like very much it's Donald Trump's race to lose. Um, he is obviously far ahead in, in polling all across the board. Um, I think it shows that it's it's really hard for a candidate to make a case against Trump because uh, he is so popular and because when it comes to the legal battles, even the people who want to vote for somebody else in the primary don't think don't don't give a lot of credence to those uh, indictments and prosecutions and think that they're politically motivated. So you can't really convince people to abandon him because of that. And, and policy wise, nobody is really drawing a huge distinction from him um, on that front, except I guess you can argue the Ukraine issue with Pence, obviously, and, and there, there are others. Um, but uh, so it, it's hard for these candidates that are running up against him to to make any sort of a case, it seems like for people to to abandon him. Yeah. Um, what did other candidates have to say about Trump at, at the Lincoln dinner and the charges against him? Hutchinson, Asa Hutchinson um, spoke about it briefly, and he said um, something to the effect of, uh, you know, if we vote for Donald Trump, we're going to be voting for a candidate who uh, is, you know, facing several legal um, prosecutions and battles. And we need to abandon um that candidate or, or that direction for and forge a new direction, you know, in 2024. Um, that was the second, I guess, most direct. Um, Mike Pence made made overtures to that. He didn't mention Trump, but he said, you know, we need to abandon the um the pull of populism in the in the country or in the party and kind of return to a more traditionally conservative leadership. Um, he obviously thought that leadership was himself, but yeah. Yeah. And Trump was at the event. Um, I'm curious, what did he have to say and, and how did the crowd react to him? Yeah. So he largely kind of stuck to um, prepared comments that he'd made in visits to Iowa before. He talked about um, his support for ethanol during his presidency. He talked about um, the trade war with China and the uh, subsidies that went to farmers during that in the North American Trade Agreement. He didn't really knock his opponents too much. He did mention Ron DeSantis, um, who he called De Sanctus. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that means. And he said, you know, he, he was pointing to polls where he is uh, leading Biden in a general election matchup. And he says, you know, DeSantis is losing uh, in these same polls and in these same matchups. So he's making the case that he's more electable and that he has, you know, a proven track record of getting results in the Oval Office. And the indictments have helped Trump's campaign raise millions of dollars from supporters, though he raised less after uh, the second indictment than the first, which has raised some questions about whether, um, you know, his latest charges will have the same impact. At the same time, Trump's political operation is burning through cash, paying lawyers. So Trump's Save America PAC, which began last year with about $105 million, had less than $4 million cash on hand at the end of June after paying tens of millions in legal fees. And a pro-Trump super PAC refunded a little more than $12 million to, to the primary group paying his, his legal bills. Um, an Associated Press analysis of recent fundraising disclosures shows Trump's political committees 
have paid out um, roughly $60 million to more than 100 lawyers and law firms since January of 2021. That threat posed by that colossal drain of resources has led uh, Trump's allies to establish a new legal defense fund. Uh, Todd, how does the money and support Trump gains with each indictment complicate the campaigns of the likes of Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, and the rest of, of the Republican field, which has, as, as I think Caleb alluded to earlier, largely frames the charges as products of a corrupt justice system while offering muted criticism of the president. Yeah, well, I think it, you know, it complicates their campaigns in two ways. Number one, every time he gets indicted, he seems to get more support from his from his base and Republicans, people rallying around him. I I saw a video posted on X, <laughs> I guess that's what it is now, uh, that reporter was talking to a Trump supporter, and basically this supporter said, there is absolutely nothing he could do that I can think of that would make me not support him. So these folks are dug in, and, and they think he's being persecuted. And, and, you know, secondly, there's no way these other candidates can sort of maneuver in a way that suggests that, you know, obviously Trump has some pretty serious baggage. He's got indictments. He's, you know, and all of the things that have been happening. And they, they can't capitalize on that without making his folks angry. And they've been loath to do that, of course. We've seen that from Republicans for years, reluctant to criticize his excesses and fabrications, et cetera. So they're kind of caught in a trap. They have to say some of the things about his indictments that Trump is saying, that it's a two-tiered unfair justice system and Hillary Clinton did stuff that was worse and <laughs> all of these arguments that you're hearing. So they got to, they got to follow that script and, but that doesn't allow them to, to do a very, you know, very good job of presenting themselves as an, as an alternative if they're, if they're mimicking the, the genuine article. Moving on. Um, so as I mentioned, Trump was indicted this week for a third time. This time he was indicted on felony charges for working to overturn the results of the 2020 election and block the peaceful transfer of power in the run up to um, the violent uh, riot by his supporters at the U.S. Capitol. The indictment has been met with surprising silence from Iowa's top Republican elected officials, uh, with the exception of Iowa Republican U.S. Representative Ashley Henson of Marion. Um, Henson tweeting, or I guess maybe Xing now, um, quote, another Biden scandal, another Trump indictment, just like clockwork. We must stop this un-American politicization of the judicial system, end quote. Henson's Republican colleagues in the House, U.S. Representatives Marionette Miller-Meek, Zach Nunn, and Randy Feenstra did not join her in the criticism. Asked about the latest indictment, Iowa Republican U.S. Senator Joni Ernst on Thursday, um, echoing uh, the president's allies and his legal defense team, argued the indictment illegally criminalizes Trump's protective freedom of speech. 
prosecutors have conceded Trump had the First Amendment right to lie about election fraud. The indictment, though, instead asserts Trump broke the law when his lies transformed into actions from attempts to overturn the election to obstructing official proceedings and conspiring to enlist slates of fake electors and battleground states won by Joe Biden to falsely claim that Trump had actually won them. Ernst also sided with former Vice President Mike Pence in part who said Trump's latest indictment serves as a distraction with more talk about January 6th and less attention paid to the actions and policies of the Biden administration. Uh, Ernst, though, did not directly criticize Trump or go as far as Pence in suggesting Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election should disqualify him from from holding office again. I guess, Todd, what do you make of the muted response from Iowa's top Republicans to to, to this latest indictment? Um, and it's worth noting that, you know, these same officials back in March, when a New York grand jury became the first to indict the former president on criminal charges, lined up to offer withering criticism of what they call the politically charged and sham prosecution. So what does it say about Trump's support among the party establishment in Iowa? Well, I, th- I think the party leaders are sort of waiting and seeing what happens, probably. Uh, there was a New York Times Siena College poll out today of, of Iowa Republicans, and and Trump's support is is about 10 points lower here than it is nationally. He's at 44%, but granted, he's 24 points ahead of Ron DeSantis, and, and the rest are sort of lingering in the in the single digits. But I think there there may be a sense among among those top Republicans that he's not a shoe-in, the the uh, the landscape may shift under his feet at some point. He really hasn't spent a lot of time here. I don't feel like he's working over time to win the Iowa caucuses. He's kind of dropped in a few times and uh, and even canceled one rally because of a, a tornado watch on a, on a very sunny afternoon. <laughs> so, and I, you know, I think probably deep down, they may believe that it's time to move on, but they don't want to say that publicly. So they're just, they're just not going to, not going to comment. So we'll see if Donald Trump starts attacking them on Twitter for not coming to his defense. I guess that would that would be the next logical step. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll throw this, I guess, to the group. Um, I guess, what impact do you think that the latest charges will have on his campaign in Iowa? I don't I don't think the charges themselves will have a huge impact. But I think what's impacting his campaign is that, I mean, in Iowa, unlike the rest of the nation, that when it's polled, I mean, you've got Republicans out there getting an up close view of all of these other candidates. And I think they're you know they're liking some of what they're seeing and i think that's that's what's going to undermine him is that if, if he's not here and it also looks like he can't win the general election i think you know iowans or iowa republicans are going to look look for look for an alternative and it i mean it wouldn't surprise me if they found somebody that either got close or or beat him but then you move on and what happens after that i, I do think it's the caucus process that might change his campaign and not necessarily these indictments although in the sane world they would but <laughs> we don't live in the sane world <laughs> yeah i i don't think i i feel like i've i've i i would need to see something to to change my mind about this but i don't see how much um legal political or indictment stuff can can change republicans mind about trump i I just don't think that that they think that it's um many of them think that that it's as i said a a politically motivated um prosecution and 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 so it it 
I don't know if it helps him, but I don't think it's it's turning away any supporters. I do wonder if it's going to have if he is the nominee in effect in the general election. Um, I think that that's definitely a possibility. But yeah, if, I, I haven't seen too much evidence to to say that it's affecting his his position here in Iowa. And next up, Iowa schools want state officials to clear up confusion over a new state law that led one Iowa school district to flag nearly 400 books, including children's picture books and classics like Ulysses, 1984, The Color Purple, and Catcher in the Rye to be removed from schools under a new state law that forbids teaching about gender identity and prohibits publications that depict uh, sex acts. The State Board of Education met Thursday and discussed the topic. Caleb, uh, you were there and wrote about the issue. What's the latest and what did state education officials say about their plans to give school administrators more guidance? The Department of Education officials weren't um, super clear about that. The Board of Education um, president asked uh, the legislative liaison for the department gave a presentation about, um, you know, they have this, this document that shows all the different changes that happened in um, for education in, in the 2023 legislative session. And uh, it really just kind of restates the direct kind of legislative language of what the bill of Senate file 496, what it does without, I guess, any more specific guidance that schools seem to be asking for. And the the Board of Education president asked um, the the department official, you know, whether they are going to provide any more guidance to to, to schools because, as he said, um, you know, schools are there's a lot of confusion. He said, and people are looking to the department to provide some direction. And it wasn't super clear. Um, the direct quote I had in my story is is the the official said, as we get uh, get that feedback, we'll review it on a case by case basis and determine how to appropriately respond didn't seem like a commitment to, you know, kind of a, a large or a kind of specific statewide guidance. Um, perhaps they'll kind of do an FAQ type thing or kind of respond to specific districts um, individually. But at this point, we're not really sure. Okay. And what did school librarians and school administrators have to say about the law and, and the guidance that has been provided to implement the law? Opinion just among um, librarians and administrators that I have um, gathered and from this meeting is, is really just that there is a lot of confusion, again, about what books and material would fall under this description of um of you know a description or depiction of a sex act as defined in elsewhere in code and as we saw with the um the list that you mentioned from the urban dealers i think that there was uh some sentiment that you know that and and margaret buckton a, a lobbyist for um education groups said this you know that that schools might be interpreting the law too broadly and dis and uh disqualifying books that that may not directly fall under that description and maybe weren't intended by the legislators to fall under that description but without more specific guidance, um, the schools are going to be more conservative in their interpretation and more um, cautious because they don't obviously want to get disciplined. Um, so that is the concern that that school administrators have is, is that, you know, without something more specific to go off of, they worry that that but more books will be disqualified than needed, essentially. Tad, I think you were planning on um, writing about this um, for, for for the weekend. And there's been a little bit of uh, uh, development with regard to that list compiled by the by the Urbandale district. I guess what's what's your take? Uh, well, yeah, it, it sounds like they've uh, backed away from the 400 title list, uh, which was Iowa Public Radio reported that the, the register has a story. There may be others out there. They've decided to take a lot of the books off the list that 
are LGBTQ in nature and wait to see if they get some sort of guidance, which it doesn't sound to me like the Department of Education has any immediate plans to provide that. We, we don't start seeing penalties from this law until January. So I know my own, the Linmar School District where I live is analyzing what they're going to do in ahead of January. I think this is when they're going to make their decision on if anything has to be removed. You know, that that's the thing. The, the more vague they made this law, the bigger the chilling effect on educators, you know, that are going to be reluctant to take a chance. And I think that's not a problem. It's a feature of the legislation because I think that's what they want to do is is just completely discourage educators from teaching or, or you know, requiring reading of, of books that may or may not want to follow the law, but why take a chance and lose your teacher's license? I can't remember a time where major legislation like this was passed where the, you know, the department uh, that is in charge of enforcing the rule didn't move toward writing guidelines and rules, you know, administrative rules for the law to be, to be uh, enforced. I, it's, it's really unusual. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of bad outcomes, a lot of uh, teachers afraid to teach. And I think it's just going to, you know, the law is already going to have a harmful impact by removing certain books, but I think its impact will be even more harmful so long as they leave leave school districts to sort of twist in the wind and and not know how to enforce it. Uh, and and the the sexual orientation piece is is particularly interesting because um and this was something that um Margaret Buckton brought up as well, you know, in in that Urbandale list that they brought up. And again, yes, that that has been um, you know, put on pause for now. There was a list of books that were discluded under that, you know, provision that you can't teach about sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through sixth grade that were just, you know, children's books. And a couple that jumped out to me were, were about, you know, notable politicians or, you know, uh, people in, in government like Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary. It's a children's picture book. It might have a page that, um, and I haven't read it, but I, I imagine it has a page that talks about how he, you know, has a husband, he's married to a man. But if, if and as Margaret Buckton said, you know, if, if a book is disqualified, simply because it has um, a same-sex couple in it, doesn't have any sexual themes. Uh, the the definition of, of, of sexual orientation in Iowa code is, you know, heterosexuality, homosexuality, and bisexuality. So it would also have to disqualify books with uh, a, a, a heterosexual married couple, which which seems absurd, um, as she said. So that, that's just an interesting, you know, how, how schools can navigate that. Well, and it was interesting, I mean, on that, I you know, read through the list of books, the big list. A lot of them were banned for or removed from uh, K through eight, which wasn't part of the bill. And I remember Keenan Crow from One Iowa at one point telling me they know that they can get up it banned in all of a junior high school because in a lot of districts, sixth graders go to school in a building that also houses seventh and eighth graders. And so then you have to remove them from the library, even though it's not even though it's not illegal to teach seventh and eighth graders about LGBTQ themes. So I, I guess that's uh, one warning that's that's coming to pass. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see um how districts, you know, navigate um that uh that ambiguity um and and uh how how Iowans react to that. Finally, Democratic State Representative Ken Crokin, who is serving his first term, announced this week he is running for mayor of the city of Davenport. Uh, Sarah, you wrote about uh, the announcement. What spurred Crokin to run after having just been elected to the Iowa House of Representatives last fall? 
And uh, who else is in the race? Crokin. So he announced he's running this week, um, and he really cited the uh, Davenport building collapse um, in his motivation to run and what he sees as a failure from city officials to evacuate the building and prevent the deaths of three men. And um, yeah, like you said, voters elected uh, Crokin, to, who is a Democrat in 2022 to a seat in the Iowa legislature, just finished his first session in Des Moines. And one thing that I found interesting about Crokin's announcement and his run, his candidacy is that he told his constituents and he told media and in interviews that he wasn't going to shy away from state politics if voters elect him to be mayor. I thought this was interesting, just city elections are nonpartisan. And so he, he told in an email to constituents announcing that he was running, he said he would, if, if voters elect him, he would recast the role of the mayor to advocate for um, issues like abortion access, LGBTQ rights, worker rights, and would rail against um, the education educational savings accounts um, that allow families to use public funds for private school expenses. And so I asked him, you know, if things like abortion access, you know, really fall under the purview of the mayor of the city of Davenport. And he told me, he's like, well, half the population of the city of Davenport is, uh, are women. And if that's not worth a trip to Des Moines to advocate against uh, restrictions on uh, abortion access, I don't know what is. So he's challenging the current mayor, Mike Matson. He's um, also a Democrat, a veteran who um, worked in the U.S. Army, was a longtime ROC instructor in the Davenport school system. Um, Matson, in his re-election campaign, he's focusing on the city's work on street and sewer infrastructure repairs. The city is really focused on investing in those um, during his two terms in office, um, attracting businesses like Amazon um, to the city of Davenport and public safety initiatives like a there's this new group violence intervention initiative that focuses on uh, contacting people where they're at uh, and trying to reduce gun violence. And then one other resident uh, has announced that she plans to run for mayor. Her name's Jasmine Schneider, and she's a political newcomer who is 19 years old. Crokin was a worked as a Genesis uh, health system uh, executive in marketing and government relations. So he's got some experience in, in marketing and communications and thinks that he can be a more communicative, transparent mayor. Yeah, well, that will certainly be uh, an interesting race to follow um, in the wake, as you said, of that um, that uh, tragic and, and unfortunate uh, building collapse that uh, that killed three people. Well, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. And now that you've listened to the podcast, make sure you also subscribe to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox, you'll receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. You can subscribe to that free newsletter at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Muscatine Journal, Cedar Rapids Gazette, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Mason City Globe Gazette, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Sioux City Journal. For Caleb, Sarah, Todd, and our producer Bailey, I'm Tom Barton. Thanks for listening. Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. 
Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.